Welcome to the audio podcast for Beit Abba, the Messianic Jewish ministry at the Father's house. We exist to proclaim the gospel to the Jewish people and to connect Christians to Israel and the Jewish roots of our faith. I'm going to talk to you tonight. The title of this, I think, is uh, Returning Simeon. Is Returning Simeon. And so um, I think that's not going to make a lick of sense for quite a while. But when we get to the end, I think you'll see it. How many of you like a good mystery? You like a good, yeah, oh, lots of people like a good mystery. You like a good mystery novel, maybe, a good mystery movie. I like a good mystery. Um, I like trying to figure it out. I like the twists and turns. I like being surprised. Um, You know, sometimes we'll just say, you know, it's a mystery in life to different things, a variety of things. And it may not be flattery, you know, when we say that. It may be, it's a, uh, it's a mystery illness, or it's a mystery why that person made that series of decisions and, and uh, kind of train wrecked. And that's a mystery sometimes. And conversely, a mystery can be really great. You know, you can get something in the mail, or you can get a package, you know, and it's an anonymous thing, and you know, whoa, who, who sent that to you? Well, it's a mystery, you know. Or sometimes when you're learning to tithe and be generous and really step out, it's a mystery sometimes how you get to the end of the month and, and lo and behold, you still have something left. That's a mystery sometimes. Tithing is, is, can be a mystery. I, you know, I think sometimes we think about uh, the Word of God and we think, there's a lot of mystery in here. You know, does it feel like that sometimes? Does it feel like maybe even from cover to cover, it just kind of feels like there's a lot of mystery? I mean... You can think, look at Genesis in the beginning, and we think, wow, there's, there's not a lot. Everything isn't answered to us about creation, and, and uh, you can follow it all the way to the end of the other cover in the book of Revelation and end times, and you think about the characters and the timelines of end times, and you think, wow, there's a lot of mystery in there. In the middle, you know, who wrote Hebrews? We don't know. It's a mystery, you know. <laughs> But, uh, well, how about some of the prophetic writings? That's kind of a mystery, too. Seems full of it. And yet, as I've studied, I have only found three mentions of a mystery. Only three mysteries in here. And uh, the Old Testament only mentions uh, mystery one time. Uh, well, he, the word is used a few times, but it's in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 4, and, but it's about the same um, topic, and the, the mystery is the interpretation of dreams. And Daniel says, remember King Nebuchadnezzar was having these dreams and about the kingdoms of the world that would come, and, and he wanted Daniel to interpret the dream, and the, Daniel said the interpretation is a mystery, but God is the one who reveals it. And when you get to the New Testament, there's two references of a mystery. Or, and the one of them, I'll just go to the very end, is in the book of Revelation. And there's mystery Babylon in there. So we'll wait for Pastor Miles on that one. <laughs> and we'll see what he has to say about mystery Babylon and who she is and what she's up to. So we'll leave that one there. Still a mystery. Uh, but Paul is actually the one who, who writes the most about mysteries. And he's actually writing about one mystery, and he writes about it in several places. And the mystery that Paul is talking about is the mystery of the gospel. He calls that a mystery. 
that there are aspects, there are facets of the gospel that were hidden for, for years through all the prophets even. You know, the prophets, well, Peter said it this way, that the prophets longed to see into the future to see who they were writing about. You know, all the prophets, no, nobody had the full story. Each prophet had a facet of the story. One wrote about this. One wrote about his person, where he would be from, and who he would minister to, and how he would minister, what the times would be like, and what the ministry, like the first part of his ministry as a lamb. Another one would be the, another part of his uh, ministry as a king, and a warring king. And, you know, everybody had a piece of the story, but nobody had the full mention of it, the full scope of it. And so Peter says that even the prophets kind of would lean in, and they said they longed to see... The person, the time, the, um, the sorrows and the glories to come of the one that they were writing to. And so there's a mystery involved with some of the gospel, even just who Jesus would be. What's his name? Well, they just knew him as the Messiah, but they didn't know his name, and they, but somebody knew where he would be born, and somebody else knew where he would go down to, down to Egypt. Somebody else knew that he would be in Nazareth, but... Wow, there was a lot that they hadn't pieced all together yet. Um, the other part that's a mystery would be kind of the scope of the thing. Who all would, would be involved in that? And how, what would happen with the gospel? And so Paul writes this, that even as Daniel said, interpretations are a mystery to man, but God reveals. He's the one who gives the revelation. So too, Paul said that he had received a revelation with regard to the gospel. It says this in um, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. It says, uh, by revelation, of course, Paul is writing this. He says, by revelation, there's been made known to me the mystery, which in other generations, right, all the prophets and everything, not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, okay, here we go. To be specific, Paul, what's the mystery? The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. That was a mystery, it was such a mystery. Well, I mean, because you know, like, you know, in the law and, and all the Old Testament, Israel was required to be, remain separate, as separate people, to not mingle, not to intermarry, not to mix so much with the other nations so fully, right? And so Peter was raised with that mindset, of course, and, and I mean, the food was separate, the days were separate, there, you know, the cycles were separate of life, the, the, uh, the feasts were separate. I mean, just everything was like so unique. They were so separate that when the gospel came and Jesus, you know, did all that he accomplished and Peter, who was witness of it all, even in uh, Acts chapter 10, after Jesus had already returned and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and, and all of this, there was a moment when Peter went into what is called a trance. It was probably an open vision sort of thing. And you guys know this story, I know, but a sheet came down from heaven and there was all these unclean animals on it and it happened three times because he wasn't going to get in on the first one probably, <laughs> took three times because the voice said, rise up, kill, and eat. And this kosher 
Jewish man said, oh, no, I have never done that, and I'm not about to start. And, and the Lord spoke to him again, and he said, what I've called clean, don't call unclean. And this was not a message about food and kosher law. Peter even knew it. Even if you read that chapter on, he knew that what God was telling him is that this was speaking to the Gentiles. And that even though all of his life he had been, uh, you know, just the rhythm of life, and he knew that it's like, i got to be separate, be separate, be separate, be separate, that all of a sudden this is a mystery explosion. The gospel is going to go to the, to the Gentiles, Peter. It's for everybody. And so Paul even writes this. This was a revelation that we just saw. Paul said it was a revelation for him as well. But in Ephesians 3, 8, and 9, he says, To me, the very least of all saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, or Messiah, same word. And look at this. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Paul's Paul's kind of mission, his calling was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And I love that it says here in verse 9, and to bring to light. In other words, let it be seen, show it, make manifest, let people see what the administration of the mystery of the gospel is. And this word administration means what's the stewardship of this? What's the management of this? It was given to Paul to say he was going to bring light to, he was going to like show everybody, make it visible, make it plain because of a revelation that he had had from God. What's the stewardship of the gospel? And he says, this is a mystery that this is going to go to all of the people. This is going to go to all the Gentiles. Um, But he knew that that was his calling was to do this. Ephesians chapter 2, just earlier in this same letter, he, Paul is speaking to, the, to you know, a Gentile and a Jew, Jewish audience, and he's saying, but now in Christ Jesus, or in Messiah Jesus, Yeshua, you who were formerly far off, that's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, which was the law, is what the next verse says. And even in this passage right here in Ephesians 2, he, he begins to talk about that he's calling it one new man, no longer one and the other, no longer Jews and Gentiles, but by faith being bringing together these two into a one new Man, And he said, this is the gospel, this is a mystery, but here it is. And so um, I know we, we're a mixed crowd here tonight. We have some Jewish believers in here. We have a lot of Gentile believers in here who have a heart for, for Israel. And if, and if you're like me and you've, you have a Gentile descent, then, I mean, it's amazing to me, but they were so faithful with the gospel, weren't they? Paul was faithful and brilliant with the gospel to go uh, into other cultures and, and to share the gospel. And, you know, Thomas did it and all, you know, all, they all did it. And after them and after them and after them, all the way to us. And we have received it. It's miraculous. It's miraculous what has happened. And so if you, as a Gentile believer, you've been brought into what Paul writes in Ephesians, calls it the commonwealth of Israel. 
you don't become Jewish, but you are grafted in. Paul would write in Romans 11, you're grafted in to this olive tree. You're grafted into these promises. You're grafted into this uh, family of faith, into this, uh, you know, this one new man. And so Abraham becomes your father by faith, not by blood, but by faith. And the promises that he gives he, to those of faith, he gives to you, to Gentile believers. And so even as uh, in Matthew 28, when Jesus was getting ready to ascend back to the Father, after the resurrection, and he commissions his 12 disciples with the great commission, and he says, go into all of the world and preach the gospel. Well, you've been grafted into that as well, to a responsibility on you to not just um, eat the great food yourself, right, but take the truth of the gospel and to give it to everybody that you meet, that you can, right? Not to everybody. That would be, well, that would be great. <laughs> but they may not all listen. You know what I mean. But to the Gentile believers, even though we are, we're, we've stepped into this stream of responsibility and great privilege, great privilege to carry the gospel. We've stepped into that with our Jewish brothers and sisters. But the, the Gentile believers have an added aspect to their, our responsibility. And that is, according to Romans 11, to take the gospel also, make sure, don't forget, when you go all the nations, make sure you take the gospel back to the Jewish people. Why? You know, Paul writes in Romans 1.16 that the gospel um, goes to the, to the Jews first and also to the nations. Why the Jews first? So here we are at Beit Abba, Father's house honors uh, Jewish lives, and we get it. We, I, I mean, hey, I was one of the first conversations that Pastor Dave had when he came back from Japan over eight years ago with a revelation that the Father's house has to make a shift and that we were going to take the gospel to the Jews first. We're going to take God at his word that Romans 1.16 was really what we want to do. And there was a change in the bylaws of our church that all the first giving and strangely, I worked in accounting in, that day, in those days, and I was the one that wrote those checks. Isn't that crazy? Well, I didn't sign them. I don't have that authority, but I created them. For the first couple of years, it was me, and I cried every single, Mona, you were there. I was crying the first time I was you know, creating these checks as they would go off to Israel, um, to, you know, to the ministries inside of Israel. But why is it so important that we take the gospel to the Jews first. Why would the Lord say that? And I want to say this as succinctly as possible, okay? Because it's kind of a long story, but I want to say it as brief as possible. So this is going to seem like probably, you know, like the go dog go version of, you know, what is really a grand story. It's like something as long as Moby Dick, but we're going to stick it in a, you know, quick little <laughs> shoot. Genesis we have a problem, don't we? We have the fall of man, and, and there is sin on the scene, and there's a division between man and God. And so, and the Lord knew this was going to happen. The Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the earth. He knew that this was going to happen. And the Lord needed to remedy this problem, this division, this death that sin brought. And so, in the economy of God, listen, in the administration of the gospel, this was one of the early chapters that God said, I'm going I'm to come myself. 
And I'll come in the form of what we're going to call the son, the one who comes forth from the father. And my son is going to go, and he's going to take on the form of a man. He's going to come and be born of a woman, and he's going to take on flesh and blood, and he's going to die on the cross. I mean, and this was the plan. Now, in order for God to send his son and to do that, to come as a man, that we might be his brethren even, he had to come to a people, right? Makes sense, right? You're going to come to all the world, but you got to come to a people. And so what he did was he fashioned, he brought together a people to whom he would come. And so he created the nation of Israel. He took Abraham and he said, Abraham, through you is going to come a seed. Through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. There's going to be kings coming from you. And there's some specific blessings that would come to Abraham and his literal descendants. And there are blessings that would come to his spiritual descendants, all of us. So he established Abraham. And he created a nation. And two, um, and well, let me just read this, Deuteronomy 7, 6. It says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. He's speaking of Israel now, the nation. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Earth. Why? Why was God going to make them his own possession? What were they going to be used for? Chosen for what? Why does the gospel need to go to the Jews first as we go back? And it's because, it's because, um, sorry, I just got a text. <laughs> Why are we going to the Jews first? We're going there. Uh, wow. I know, Lord help. That was distracting. We're going to the Jews first because they are going to be the ones with the revelation of God. Amen. And so where all of the other nations are polytheistic, right? They've got all these kinds of gods and they're worshiping, you know, the earth and they're worshiping idols and they're worshiping, you know, on and on, all these things. Only to Israel were they given uh, only to Israel was given the revelation of one God, a monotheistic of Yahweh. They were the only ones who had it. And so to them came the revelation. So God formed Israel. He chose a people. And then he gave his re the revelation of himself to them. But not just that. They also, with Moses, received you know, all of the law, which is what? That would be the revelation of God's holiness, so not only does God exist, but here he is, folks, and we're going to start showing you his attributes and how holy he is. And so that's why the, the law is just kind of a mind blow, and you think, wow, how can anybody do that? No, we're showing, he's showing you his holiness and that you're going to be in need of a Savior because you can't do it. And so also to Israel is given the promises of a Messiah, the one who would come and who would remedy this sin problem from Genesis 3. So to them come the revelation of, comes the revelation of God, and the holiness of God is revealed. The promises that this Messiah would come and take care of. Here's your hope. The, to Israel was given the prophets and all the, prof, the prophetic utterances. Here's the times. Here's, what's gonna, here's what I'm doing. Why? Why is Israel chosen? Why are, his, why are they his own possession? Because it's through Israel that the work of redemption is going to come. It's, it's, this is all about a love story re, of redemption. 
I'm going to buy you out of slavery, and I'm going to return you to me, and I'm going to make your life extraordinary, and you're going to be with me all the days of your life and forever. So, but I got to come to you through a people. And so this is why Israel is here. There was only, so by the first century, and we know from the Old Testament, this was not a perfect story, was it? In the sense of they didn't live it out perfectly. It's a great story. It's a great administration. But the working out of it, they were human. And there was a lot of uh, ups and downs in those, a lot of downs in those years. But even by the first century, there was only one people who were waiting for the Messiah. And it was them. As imperfect as some of that was in that day, they were the only ones. Now listen, if you were going to send the Savior, or if I was going to send the Savior of the world uh, in the first century, I probably would have sent him as a Roman. Because Rome was ruling in that day. They had the internet. They had all the coliseums. They had all the fancy billboards. They had all the communication, right? They were it. They had all the money. They had everything, everything, everything. If you were anything, if you were really hot, if you were, uh, you know, fabulous, you're, you're going to do it through the Roman government. So why, why this little outpost in Judea? These people that were so different from everybody else. Why, why would you go there? I mean, that doesn't seem like that's a good strategy. Except for if you had sent the Messiah to Rome, to the Romans, well, he would have just been in this whole list of gods. Take your pick. You know, here's Zeus, here's Apollos, here's, I don't know them all. Here's Diana, and here's Yeshua, and he says he's the Lamb of God. We don't actually know, but worship him if you want. But here's like all the others. But there was only one nation who had the revelation of God, who knew that God was one, and it was Israel. And so it was this perfect seedbed. They were this perfect bed for the Messiah to come into. And, but he came into his own, and they didn't really receive him so well. But what's their role? Well, Isaiah even says this of them in Isaiah 42.6. He calls them Israel, the light unto the Gentiles. It says this, and light into the nations. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. And in the book of Isaiah, you see a lot of references to my servant and my servant. And you don't know always which servant he's talking about. Is he talking about Israel, my servant? Or is he talking about you know, the ultimate Jewish man, my servant, Messiah. And you look at the context. And in Isaiah, and you have to look at some cross-references too, but Isaiah is going to prophesy to both the Messiah and to the nation of Israel, you're the light of the world. You're the light unto the nations. It was Israel's job. It was written inside the DNA of every Jewish person to be a light into the nations, to take that revelation of God and take it into the nations. And this was their job. And so you can see why the enemy over all of these millennia want to wipe out the Jewish people. Why? Because they're a light to the nations. They're carrying the revelation of God. Imperfectly, maybe, but they're carrying it. This is a, this is a, it's a job from God, Okay. And so we get to the first century, as I said, and some received him, some didn't, but by the glory and praise of God, Acts chapter 2, the church is birthed. 
right? The church is birthed and, and the gospel goes out from there, goes out from Jerusalem. And, and eventually Paul gets saved, as you know. And even in Acts chapter 13, 47, Paul says this. He says, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. He's quoting Isaiah. And so he's saying, yes, it was true of the Messiah because even Jesus would say, I'm the light of the world. But he would look at his disciples and said, you're the light of the world, right? What, hey, you've got to take the gospel to the world. And Paul is even saying, I know it's my job to take the light of the, the gospel, the revelation of God to the Gentiles. And they did it. And so much so that, right, if you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. So the vast majority of all, all of created people, right, are Gentile. If you're not Jewish, you're Gentile. So if you're effective in taking the gospel, pretty soon what was happening in that early church was there became more and more Gentiles that were part of the church. But this is the good news. I mean, this is the great news. This was the plan. This was the administration all along. This was the plan. God so loved the world. He even, he said through Isaiah, he said, I think I might have skipped that verse. He said through Isaiah that it's too small of a thing if my servant goes to um, oh, thank you. It's too small of a thing if, if you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel. But I'm going to make you, Messiah, a light to the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It has always been the plan that all of the world would be saved. And this is why Israel was created and formed, because they would be the vehicle to whom Messiah would come, the revelation of God would come, and through whom the gospel would go out. And so can you understand now why Paul says the gospel needs to go to the Jew first? Why? Because we have some Jewish lamps that need to be relit. So even by the, even the first century, um, you know, Paul, uh, well, yeah, in the 50s and 55, the year 50, 55 or so, um, there was some anti-Semitism that was even in the Roman church. And this is why Paul writes Romans 9 through 11. There was a period of time when the Jews were kicked out of Rome. They were, and for a period, I want to say like five years or something like that, but then event, and so the church went on though in Rome, but they went on without the Torah scrolls because they don't know how to read Hebrew. They went on without the, the messianic influence of that Jewish people. They went on, the Roman church did, but then even in the, even in the context of the book of Roman, Romans, these Jewish believers are allowed back in by another ruler. And, but what had happened was there was this kind of a seed that had set in the Roman church to say, we don't need you. We were fine without you. And so Paul begins to write Romans 9 through 11. And he asks, and he says, don't you be arrogant against that Jewish root. Don't forget that you've been grafted into this, but that root is Jewish. And he says to, to, um, he says to, to them in Romans 11, he asks even the question. He said, has God given up on the Jewish people? He said, may it never be. He has not. So even Paul, by the, in the 50s, Paul is seeing it. We're seeing the beginnings, not the beginnings, because it's been going on since, right, Haman. Or in the Exodus, right, anti-Semitism has been there. But I'm just saying also Paul saw it, even in the early church. But even in 250 years later, in the early 300s, 
there was this tremendous, right, at the Nicene Council, all of a sudden Constantine, a Roman emperor, decides that Christianity will be the, um, the, the, uh, the, the religion of, the, of Rome, right? So it's institutionalized now. But what's happened in all of this? Well, what happened was in, even in, the, in 70, when the year 70, when the temple was destroyed, in the year 132, when the Romans came back and really, uh, really um, required all the Jewish people to leave out of the area of Jerusalem. If they went into the area of Jerusalem, they would be punished by death. And so what you see, even in starting in Acts chapter 6, where there's the persecution at the, by the hands of Paul with Saul, at the hands of, there was this dispersion of the Jewish people, these Jewish believers, that they left Jerusalem and they began to go into the parts of the earth. And ironically, Paul is the guy who's going to now take them the gospel. I've kicked you out, but now I'm actually going to bring you this gospel, which is so interesting to me. But there have been these dispersions, even early, Acts chapter 8, right? And then later, the temples uh, burned and destroyed, more dispersion, 132, more dispersion. And what's happening is every time this goes on and the Jewish people are leaving, they're moving into uh, the nations and they're, and they're beginning to lose that uniqueness that they've had. And, and even as there's success with the gospel, what's happening after 132, the, the seat of the Roman, of the, excuse me, of the, of the church, which had been based in Jerusalem, was, they couldn't anymore, or they would have been killed, and, and the, the center of the church moved to Rome eventually. And so all of a sudden, when that happens, when you remove the center of the church and who's leading the church out of a Jewish context into a Roman context, all of a sudden, Jesus began to not look like Jesus anymore. And we, he began that, that story of the Jewish roots was beginning to be lost, confused. And the Messianic, I've read the history on this, it's absolutely fascinating and heartbreaking but even, the, even as the, the uh, church was growing and the early church fathers were doing their things, so when I'm talking about like even in the 200s and the 300s now, they were beginning to eliminate that Jewish, Messianic Jewish voice. Well, thank you, we got it from here. And, and we, were, we were losing the Jewishness of the gospel, and Jesus was losing his Jewish look. And so even by the early 300s, there was a requirement in churches now, which is institutionalized. I'm not saying they're life-giving, spirit-filled churches. It's more like Roman, you know, here they go. And Jesus looks very Catholic now, and he's got this, you know, halo plate over his head. No, don't ever see that in Jewish things, right? But he looks very Jewish. He looks like he's Catholic, or excuse me, he looks very Catholic, non-Jewish. And even there's a requirement within the church that... Um, if you're Jewish, we, you need to put away your Shabbat candles. Uh, don't circumcise your boys. Uh, go ahead and have the ham sandwich. You know, we want to see you working on the Sabbath so that we know that you know you're one of us and you're not this other. And there began to be this great divide in the early church, even. And this is, you know, got the fingerprints of the enemy, folks, all over yes. it. Yes. If he couldn't stop. Jesus, let's go ahead and break up the bride, break up the church. And so the, we, the, uh, Jesus, I want to say changed, he didn't change, but in the eyes of the Jewish people, 
he, it began to change his appearance, and he became like, I mean, how many f Jewish friends have you heard this from, too, where they were shocked that he's Jewish? They thought that he was Catholic, you know, son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. But that he's Jewish was a revelation. That's how far it went, right? So that's even as the early church. But it's given to you and I, even in, as Paul wrote, to take the gospel back to the Jews. This is our role. It's our role. Sink it, let it sink in. That's why Beidab is here. It's for our Jewish family and friends so that they have a place to come. There is a, um, and this is not a new role in the sense that this is not part of the administration that was like, um, that God didn't think about. No, he knew that this was going to be part of the story even from the beginning. And there are places in scripture where, in the Old Testament, where you even see this, um, and I want to go here tonight for the rest of our time, and I'll try to hustle through it. Um, I take you to a place in the Old Testament. It's actually Joseph's story where we get a picture of the work of what I believe are the Gentile believers. And so now if you go to Joseph's story, it's, it's um, you know, Genesis 37 through 50. And just even, that's even amazing that we think about how even in the book of Genesis, you know, creation gets two chapters, you know, uh, you'd think that there would be more on that. And where Joseph gets 14 chapters. You know, why? Because it really wasn't about, he didn't, he wasn't trying to develop the whole idea of creation. He's trying to introduce you to God. And then he's going to introduce you to the plan of God. And he's going to do it through this life of Joseph. Because the life of Joseph, maybe more than almost anybody in the Old Testament, is, is such a foreshadow of Jesus. There, he's a type of Jesus. He, and you look at Joseph's life and you see Jesus. You see, uh, you know, his ministry and the person and all of that. I mean, it's just, we're going to save, we'll save that study for another time, right? Because that's probably like a series, even the story of Joseph and his, how he's a type to Jesus. But all I want to do tonight is kind of with tweezers, go in that story and pull out one thing out of here, one place and show you where I think that you and I as Gentile believers play a part in that story. And so, but to do that, let me just super briefly, and again, if you want to know Joseph, I'm not familiar with Joseph's story, go chapters 37 through 50. But Joseph, you know, he was one of the 12 uh, sons of Jacob, so one of the 12 tribes of Israel in there. There's more of that story, but you know it. Um, and uh, so even though he was number 11 in the birth order, he was the oldest son of Rachel, and so, which was Jacob's favorite love, beloved wife. And so Joseph became the favorite son. And so the 10 older sons didn't like that at all. That was monkey business to them. They're like, we've had enough of that. We'd actually like to get rid of him, they thought. And so they did. As shepherds, they were out one day, one day, and there was this plot to get rid of this pesky little brother, as you guys know. And so I'm cutting so much out. But they sell him, right, to some traders that were going by. And Joseph goes off into Egypt, and he's 17 years old. And they concoct this story to their father. Must have been eaten by wild animals, right? So for the next 13 years, Joseph's in Egypt. And he's, in, uh, he's, a, he's a prisoner in Egypt. He's a slave in Egypt. But it says over and over that, that Joseph, for Joseph that the Lord was with him. 
and, and he excelled in some things, right? And then, and he had privilege and all of that. And then all of a sudden he's falsely accused and you guys know the story and he ends up in the worst state the second time. Now he's in this dungeon. But he, he's faithful there, and the Lord was with him there. And it says even that um, he, uh, he was an interpreter of dreams even, right? Oh, here we go, mysteries again. And um, 13 years later, this, this young man, who's now 30 years old, ends up in one day before the Pharaoh, the king, if you will, of Egypt, to hear a dream that the Pharaoh had, and he's going to give an interpretation to it. And he does it successfully. And he, for, and he tells the interpretation of the dream that, that you know, there, would be, there was coming now seven years of, of abundance uh, food-wise and seven years to follow that would be of famine and poverty. And so he was going to, you know, the idea would be, Pharaoh, we need to make a plan for that in Egypt. And so Pharaoh said, good, you're my guy. You're the guy that's going to do it. And so Joseph goes from the dungeon to the second in command of all of Egypt in a day. Right, and, and he oversees now all of the food supply of Egypt for, and really the world for the, what, like the next 14 years. So fast forward uh, eight years from that, about 20, 21 years from the day, or from the time, I mean, that the brothers get rid of him, about 20, 21 years later, guess who comes to Egypt, right, to buy food, and it's these 10 older brothers, but, you know, 20, 21 years have passed, so his form has certainly changed, been, right? Think about a 17-year-old 20 years later, that's going to be pretty different. They don't recognize him. Well, plus, and I, uh, are you, I want you to start hearing the parallel to Jesus. He looks Egyptian now. He doesn't look Jewish anymore. Kind of like in the 300s and early on. We don't recognize you anymore. You look very Gentile, Jesus. You look Catholic. And Jesus' brothers come to him, and they don't recognize because he's got a different language. He has a different look. He looks very Egyptian. He doesn't look like one of them anymore. And so they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them right away. And you guys know the story. He, he challenges them a little bit. They say, we're honest men. He's like, mm-mm. And, and, uh, but he goes ahead, and he, he says... Um, I think you're spies, and unless you, you know, do you got, a, got anybody else in your family? You know, yeah, we have a little brother, Benjamin. Okay, we'll give you food and supplies, but um, we're going to take your brother, I'm going to take your brother, Simeon, and I'm going to lock him up. And it says right in, in the presence of all the brothers, they take Simeon, and they tie him up, and they take him down to prison. And they said, you can have Simeon back when you bring this younger brother, Benjamin, with you. And so here's their food and here's all your things, but you're not going to get Simeon again. What's interesting, you guys, Simeon's name means hearing. Hearing was locked up. So even if they hear the gospel, hearing's been locked up. We don't recognize you anymore, Joseph. You don't look like us anymore. And our ears are locked up. My heart's locked up. Romans, Paul writes, there's a partial hardening that's happened until the Gentiles have fully come in. Within like another year or two, maybe it's a year, it's hard to tell exactly, 
Jacob says, boys, we're out of food again. You need to get back to Egypt. And the boys, the sons, they're not boys, they're men now, right, of course. But they say, Dad, we can't go back there because the man told us that we got to bring Benjamin with us and you won't let Benjamin come with us. And so we can't even go get Simeon or more food. And so Jacob says, take Benjamin. So they go a second time. And this is kind of where we really begin to see uh, the part, I believe, where we come in. I believe, as you hear this story unfold, I believe that we're the house steward, or we're the servants, the Egyptian servants. Okay, listen, I want you to listen to the parallel, okay? So, so Joseph um, is, is there. He's still in Egypt. The 10 brothers come back a second time, but now it's 11 brothers because they've got Benjamin with him. And when, when Joseph sees his brothers, he is very emotional when, he see, when Benjamin is revealed to him. In, in uh, chapter 43 of Genesis, in verse 16, um, I don't have any slides on this, so I'm just going to read it to you. And it says, And Joseph saw Benjamin with him, and he said to his house steward... Okay, it's his servant. Now listen, this is not a dig to say that you and I are like parallel or types of this house steward, or let's just call it one of any of the servants. Because Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, what do you got to be? A servant of all. And so it's not, a, it's not an inferior position that we're going to read about this house servant. This is a high uh, role that they take to serve the king, to serve the one in authority. Okay, so Joseph says to his house steward, he says, and, and can I just say, I think he, Jesus would say to you and I as Gentile believers, bring the men into the house. And then he says, and, and he says, slay an animal and make it ready. In other words, prepare a meal because the men are going to dine with me at noon. So they got ready for it. And, and uh, the brothers were pretty... Um, Uptight, it said the scripture says that they were afraid to do this because they thought for sure they were going to get in trouble before Joseph because not only had they, um, they had, Joseph had not only given them their food, he had given them their money back and they realized it later, right? And so they, they were like, oh, he, this guy's going to think we stole it. We, we got to make it, hurry up, like make up the story, tell the truth that we, we brought the money. We really did. Don't be mad at us. And so it says that the house steward meets them at the entrance of the house. Just think about that. They're like, they come to the house but they don't really feel like they belong in the house. And they meet the steward at the door of the house, and they're afraid. And they're just talking probably 100 miles an hour. Oh, we brought the money. Really, we did. You got to know we really did. And he'll, here's our brother. And, and the steward stops him, and he says in verse 23, be at ease. Don't be afraid. And I think that's even what our hearts would be to our Jewish friends when they're like, church, are you kidding me? Jesus, I can't do Jesus. I'm Jewish. Jews don't do Jesus. And it's almost just like, just stop. Be at ease. You know what Isaiah says? Uh, he says in Isaiah 49, 22, it says, the Lord's, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations, to the Gentiles, I will set up my standard to the people, and they will bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. What? To my house. 
And then Isaiah 41 and verse 2, it says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended. And the steward says this to them, Be at ease, don't be afraid. And he said, uh, Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And then you know what he did? Then he brought Simeon out to them. When you reach out to your Jewish friends and family, even if they stop at the door of the house, be kind, put them at ease, tell them they belong. It says that when, when the steward brought them in, he washed their feet, he made a place for them, he fed the donkeys. He was setting the table so that Joseph, Jesus, could have a meal with them. And he, they, he gave them Simeon back. What did he do? Unstop the hearing. Oh, my ears were clogged up, and, right? But now I can hear, even as it says, and um, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he said, there's a veil over the Jewish eyes until it's removed in Jesus. What? Until Simeon's returned. Joseph gets the guys, and you know the story about how he gradually begins to reveal that he actually knows who they are. Right? He puts them in their birth order. He keeps taking like five times, which is the number of grace. He keeps giving Benjamin five times the portion. Oh, you know, we're lamb for you, five for Benjamin, you know. Bread for you, five for Benjamin. You know, and he does this. And finally it says in Genesis 45, verses 1 through 4, and Joseph couldn't control himself before all of those who stood by him. And he cried out. He said, everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? And but these brothers couldn't answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. They were speechless, right? And then Joseph said to his brothers, not get away from me. Come closer. And they came closer. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph. This is going to happen to your family, Laura. And in verse 5, he says, Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, because God sent me before you to preserve life. Amen. And I'm so reminded of Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 right now. We see this in Zechariah writes about what's going to happen in the future. And he says, I'll pour out, the Lord says, I'm going to pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and of supplication so that when they look at me, whom they have pierced, that they will mourn as one who mourns for an only son. They will bitterly weep over him. They're going to see him and they're going to go, it's, it's been you the whole time. And then in verse 13, or excuse me, chapter 13, verse 6, they're going to say to him, where did you get these wounds that are between your arms? 
And he said, I got him in the house of my friends. But there's going to be a revelation. Friends, you're a part of this story. The part of the mystery and the revelation of the administration of the gospel written into that is part one is a wonder that you and I get to be a part of it. And two, you and I have a responsibility to take the gospel back to our Jewish family and friends. Why? Because there's some unfinished business still. They need to know the Lord because they are still the light to the nations. And so are you, but they have a call on them as a people to take the revelation of God. And Paul writes in Romans 11 that when that happens, there will be a worldwide revival. But you're part of this story. And even as people who have a heart for the Jewish people, and even as a church who has a file, praise God for Jewish ministry, we have a file for that. I believe that we ought to be the most effective of all. You want to know what's strange? I just thought about this like 10 minutes before I left the house tonight. I told this story to a Jewish friend of mine a couple years ago. She was a Holocaust survivor. She had cancer, stage four. And every time I got together with her in San Francisco, I knew I wouldn't have a lot of left. I wouldn't have a lot of time left. And so on my la- one of the last times I ever visit- I got to visit with her, her name is Sonia, and I told her this story over lunch. I said, I just want to tell you this story. And she knew it before I even gave the punchline. She goes, you're doing this for me, aren't you? I said, I'm the steward. I said, the first time you saw Jesus when you were a little girl in the hiding during the Holocaust in that Catholic orphanage, and you used to sing as a little girl, and she even wrote in her autobiography that she liked that Jesus, but the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, woof. Couldn't put it all together, but she liked him. He brought comfort to her as a little girl. But all of the Holocaust atrocities and loss and everything, now she's in her 80s. And I said, it's time to meet him again a second time. And that afternoon, the presence of the Lord came into her room, into her apartment where we were. It was so powerful. And we both got tears in our, I mean, I had never experienced it before like that. Like we were listening to classical music and she says, you know, I just love classical music so much. And she did. And she says, I find, I think, I think God must be in music. And like within like 20 minutes, there was, no, it's less than that. Probably like 10 minutes, something happened and the presence of the Lord came in that room. And what did he do? He took her up on it. I'm going to come right in the middle of your classical music. And the room was so thick with the presence of the Lord. And she stood up and she looked at me like with deer in the headlight. And she couldn't even speak. And I could read her mind, though, you know, and say, like, Kathy, what are you doing? And I said, oh, no, it's not me. (laughs) I'm not doing it. I said, the Lord has come to you to reveal himself a second time. And she gave her life to the Lord right there. It's this story. Can't see him. He's changed his appearance. Simeon's locked up. 
but stewards, servants. Meet them at the door. Go find them. Speak kindly to them. Come in, wash the feet, feed the donkeys, prepare a place because Yeshua wants to meet with them. And there's coming a day when that Simeon will be returned and the hearing will hear again. But we got to be faithful with it. Amen. For more information about Beit Abba, log on to our website at tfh.org slash Beit Abba or call our office at 707-455-7790.